0: welcome into loho daily i am loho aka lawrence holmes thanks so much for listening to the podcast today one of the things that i've enjoyed about the climate that we're in right now the the sports landscape that we're in right now is it's given us an opportunity to go back and look at some sports stories that need a little bit more time and a little bit more context to fully discuss and I was going through my DVR, and there's this E60 that I had had recorded about the 1919 Black Sox, and I, I found the whole thing fascinating. Like they did a whole deep dive on what was real and what was imagined about the 1919 White Sox, and I was like, oh, you know what? That's something that maybe All Star Week I'll do, or when when there's a slower time, I'll I'll do something like that. And I came back to it because, obviously, we're in a slower time, although things are starting to ramp up a little bit now. We're starting to see some sports try to figure out how to come back. And there was a guy on there that I said, I got to get this guy. I want to talk with this person. And it's Jacob Pomeranke. When I saw the E60 piece, I was really blown away by his depth of knowledge when it came to baseball back then, and particularly the the White Sox of 1919. He's a writer, and editor. He has a book about the, the 19 White Sox. You should be following him. Very simple, on Twitter, at Buck Weaver. How great is that? So I reached out. I had been to a Sabre conference back in the wintertime, down in, in Arizona, and I'm a big fan of Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research. I know a, a bunch of great people, and I guess technically, I think I paid a membership, so I think now I'm I'm technically a member of Sabre, which, if you're a big baseball fan, you should think about doing it. Anyway, I tracked Jacob down, and I wanted to get him on to do a, a long-form interview with explaining the, the all of the ramifications of... The Black Sox and everything else that has to do with the the that scandal and all the particulars and what was real, what were things that weren't true, how was this thing depicted in movies, and where could we find some truth in what happened? Why well, pick the right guy? This is Jacob Pomeranki and I talking about the the Black Sox. I wanted this to live in a space where people could just get it. Like they didn't have to go through and listen to the show archive; that they could just have it whenever they wanted it. But this is us talking about the nineteen nineteen Black Sox and them winning the World Series, and we start this thing off with us talking about the movie Eight Men Out. That's where a lot of people have gotten their information about the nineteen nineteen White Sox, and a lot of that information is a little bit off, as Jacob explains. <laughs>
1: well there's there's quite a bit and no one expects hollywood to uh, be 100% accurate of course but you know the the issue is that eight men out was written back in the 1960s more than 50 years ago um, and we've learned so much about the black Sox scandal in the 1919 world series since then so you know the you know we're we're piecing together the story in a in a far different way than Uh, The author of that book, Elliot Asanoff, uh, had access to. And I'd say the biggest myth about the Black Sox scandal is this idea that they threw the World Series because the White Sox owner, Charles Comiskey, was this Scrooge character who paid them so poorly and treated them so bad that uh, they had no choice but to throw the World Series. I think that's uh, the biggest number one myth uh, about the Black Sox scandal.
0: All right, then let's talk about salaries. How much were, the, were these guys making in comparison to what the average American was making back then? Well, we now have access to uh, their
1: accurate salary records from the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is something that uh, Aitman now did not have access to. And, you know, we're able to kind of put together that story. And the White Sox in 1919 had one of the highest payrolls in baseball, not one of the lowest. Um, the players were making an average of about four or five thousand dollars a year, which was about four times the average working man's salary um, in America in 1919 after World War One. And some of the Black Sox players who fixed the World Series were among the highest-paid players at their position, like Eddie Seacott, the ace pitcher, and Chick Gandol and Shoeless Joe Jackson. All of these players were pretty well paid compared to other players in baseball.
0: Do you think that that these guys were duped into being involved in this or i mean some of the stuff i read tells me that that seacott and gandall kind of went and found the gamblers to get on this
1: yeah that's another one of the biggest myths we published this project called the eight myths out project at saber last year for the 100th anniversary of the 1919 world series and that's one of our our big eight myths uh, that we uh, discussed was that the players themselves were the ones who approached the gamblers to initiate the uh, world series fix. It was not the other way around. These these guys were not naive and undereducated, uh, ball players—they—they they knew what they were doing, and this was part of the culture of baseball at the time. Gambling and baseball kind of were intertwined in the early 20th century. You could not go to the ballpark without being able to bet on games. Gamblers had their own sections at Fenway Park in Boston and Wrigley Field in Chicago. Um, you know, and so th- this was just part of the culture of the game. And ball players and gamblers mixed all the time. So these guys, you know, saw each other on road trips and were friends with some of the gamblers. And so that's uh, kind of how it all happened.
0: So was this really just kind of an idea? It was convenient. This was an, a way to make a quick buck instead of we are so underpaid, we have to find a way to get out from under the thumb of Charles Comiskey.
1: Right. you know, and, and there is some validity to the idea that they were underpaid because back then there was no free agency. There was no players union. So the players didn't really have any recourse about negotiating higher salaries and this was uh, the days of the reserve clause when players were tied to one team for their entire careers. So th- they did have a little bit of resentment, but so did every other player on all 16 major league teams. The White Sox cannot be singled out for, uh, you know, hating their owner any more than the Philadelphia A's would hate their owner, Connie Mack. So I think this this idea that the White Sox were treated so poorly and that this is the reason that they uh, were motivated to fix the World Series it really isn't true it doesn't hold up to uh to kind of modern scrutiny with modern research
0: noted baseball historian jacob pomeranke joining me here on the score his twitter name is at buck weaver so what was it about buck that you decided that you were going to take him on as an avatar for yourself on twitter
1: (laughs) well it was available at the time 10 or so years ago and I've used Buck Weaver uh, all over the place. And, you know, his story is is so compelling. You know, this is uh, this is one of the reasons why we're still talking about the Black Sox scandal more than 100 years later is because it kind of has a little bit of everything. Crime, corruption, betrayal, injustice. And and I think injustice is is the word that most people would use to describe Buck Weaver's story, because um, by all accounts, he did not get paid uh, to fix the World Series. and, And he may or may not have. Had guilty knowledge about what was going on. I, I believe he did uh, know what was going on. There is some evidence that he attended the the meetings between the players, um, but so did everyone else. A lot of other people, including Charles Comiskey, also had guilty knowledge and and tried to cover it up after the fact. So uh, Buck's story is is you know something that lives on, and Shoeless Joe Jackson, of course, is you know in the the popular culture with Field of Dreams and the Eight Men Out movie, and so it's just you know it's a story that lives on, and we're continuing to find
0: out more about it. So. It's, that continues to fascinate people 100 years later. I, I know that this might be a stretch to to make this parallel, but at the time that the White Sox and, and, and the Reds are going to play this, this World Series, there's an end to a world war. There's also a, a nation that's recovering from a pandemic. And so here baseball is again trying to restart after dealing with a pandemic. For, for Back then... Is that why we saw the World Series go nine games? Because it's it's such a – was that a money grab that happened because they were trying to make up for revenue lost?
1: Essentially, yes. I I, I do believe that's true. It was uh, something that, you know, after World War I and, of course, the global flu pandemic in 1918, 1919, um, no one knew whether fans would return to the game in 1919. And the baseball owners made the decision to shorten the season by two weeks. Um, to 140-game schedule in 1919. And so, you know, they weren't quite sure what was going to happen when baseball returned. And so that was one of the uh, ways that they wanted to help increase interest was to make it a best-of-nine series. And that experiment only lasted three years, 1919 to 1921, uh, before it ended and we went back to the best-of-seven ever since. But, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons because nobody quite knew what was going on. It uh, has a lot of parallels to what we're facing today.
0: In my mind, I think of that team and go, man, this was a team that you couldn't beat. How good were they actually?
1: Oh, they were certainly very good, and I think on the verge of, of possibly a, a dynasty in the American League. And it would have been a lot of fun to see how they would have competed against Babe Ruth and the Yankees in the early 1920s. I think those those battles for the pennant would have been really intense. Um, you know, they had won the World Series in 1917 and. Uh, the war uh, shortened the season in 1918, and they lost a lot of players to the military and to uh, defense industry jobs in 1918. But 1919, they had their core team back, and so the, you know they ended up winning independent. They were a very strong team, uh, especially the offense. Uh, the pitching kind of relied on the one-two punch of Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams, um, because Red Faber had contracted uh, what we think might be the flu in 1919 and he missed half the season and he missed the world series is a future hall of famer um, but their offense was stacked and they had a great lineup one through eight in the lineup and uh, they were a very very good team but so were the cincinnati reds the national League champions uh, they should not get short tripped uh, as deserving champions they were a, a very good all-around team as well
0: and and don't the, the at least at the time weren't the people in cincinnati didn't they believe that their team was actually good enough to have won this game flat out, won this series flat out.
1: Absolutely. And and all of the Reds players and and fans said so, you know, for the rest of their lives. They believed that if the World Series had been played on the level, that they would have beaten the White Sox. And I think there's a strong case to be made for that because the Reds, uh, unlike most teams at the time, had a strong five-man pitching rotation. And they used all five starters in the World Series. They had a very deep pitching staff. And the White Sox were reliant on their one-two punch of Seacott and Williams. So uh, there is, you know, if if either of those guys had had faltered, it you know it's possible that the Reds would have won the World Series on the level. I think they were a much deeper team uh, all around than the White Sox were. The White Sox were very reliant on their star players. So yeah, no, I think the Reds have a strong case that they could have won the World Series on the level.
0: Talking with Jacob Pomeranke, who is the author of Scandal on the South Side noted baseball historian a member of Sabre he does a tremendous job and I'm glad he's got a few minutes to kind of hang out and talk with us uh, about the 1919 White Sox what was Kennesaw Mountain Landis's connection to baseball because in the book and in the movie it almost makes it seem like he's this outsider that they brought in but wasn't he connected to the league before that
1: he was he was actually a federal judge and based in Chicago and Uh, his claim to fame in terms of baseball relations before the Black Sox scandal is that he was the judge who oversaw the Federal League's lawsuit against Major League Baseball, Um, and they were trying to uh, sue Major League Baseball to become a third Major League in 1914-1915. And so Landis was the judge who oversaw that case, and he essentially helped Major League Baseball win that case by – Uh, waiting it out so that the Federal League ran out of money and and had to fold, essentially. So Landis had helped Major League Baseball a few years earlier, and he was a noted baseball fan. You could find him at the ballpark all the time. So when baseball was trying to come up with a new leadership structure with a one-man commissioner, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was an ideal choice to uh, serve as as commissioner and in the best interest of the game. So that's uh, why he got the job.
0: What happened to Shoeless Joe afterwards, and, and and why was he depicted as a rube, considering that he had a lot of businesses that succeeded?
1: Yeah, you know, Shoeless Joe
0: Jackson is a fascinating,
1: complex person. Um, you know, he, he was illiterate. That is true. He could not read or write, never could. Um, you know, he famously uh, stopped going to school around the age of eight or nine, um, so that he could work in the, in the textile mills in South Carolina. Um, so all of that is true, and I think that's kind of uh, built up into this legend that she was Joe was this dumb ball player, and all he could do was hit, hit a baseball better than just about anyone on the planet. And that was also true. But, uh, no, he was a very shrewd businessman, too. He was very successful after baseball, after he was banned for life. And uh, running various businesses with his wife Katie, and so you know so this idea that again she was Joe is kind of this this archetype of this dumb ball player that got caught up in a scandal that he knew nothing about uh, unfortunately doesn 't hold up with what we know about him. his story is is much more complex and much more fascinating i think than than even the legend uh, gives him credit for him.
0: so so what do you believe after digging into all of this stuff well what's what do you buy about how this went down and how it's portrayed well
1: i think this was certainly a a black eye for baseball and and nobody really comes out of this story looking good um this was a situation like i said the the culture of baseball at the time was that gambling was rampant and you know nobody was really overseeing it Uh, nobody in baseball nobody outside of baseball it was something that I think was inevitable. It was a perfect storm that the gamblers and the, the ball players were going to get together and, and fix games because no one had ever really been punished for it. I think the Black Sox scandal happened because the players saw such a low risk of punishment and such a high reward. They were going to make as much as their annual salaries in one week for fixing that World Series. And they didn't think anyone was going to punish them for it because no one had ever really been punished for fixing games before. And so I think that was one of the reasons this this whole thing happened is because baseball had a lot of opportunities to clean up the gambling culture and the game fixing uh, in the 1910s before the 1919 World Series. And in that way, it's very similar to kind of what we're seeing now with the Houston Astros and the sign stealing and technology. Baseball had a lot of opportunities to clean this up and, and kind of lay down the iron fist and say, you know, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And that was true a hundred years ago with gambling as well. And I think that's, uh, you know, one of the parallels here is that baseball could have cleaned this up a, lo- a long time before 1919. And they, they always chose to look the other way in the name of profits. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons this, this whole thing
0: boiled up and
1: uh, became a huge scandal like it did
0: there's nothing better when you're digging through things and you find something that you think is super relevant. And I know that a lot of historians in in a lot of different disciplines have that moment for you. What was the moment where you're digging through, probably even wearing gloves, looking at stuff and you went, wow, (laughs) what, what was it about in researching this that made you take a step back?
1: (laughs) Well, I, you know, one of my biggest interests is kind of what happened to these guys off the field after they were banned for life. And there's that famous scene in the movie Eight Men Out at the very, very end. And Shoeless Joe Jackson is playing outlaw baseball in New Jersey in 1925 or so. And supposedly, Buck Weaver, played by John Cusack, is in the stands for this game. And when I saw that movie uh, for the first time, I wanted to know did this really happen? Was Shoeless Joe Jackson playing ball under an assumed name? in New Jersey, and Buck Weaver was watching him play. Well, that part isn't true. Buck was never there. Um, But uh, Sheila's Joe did play in New Jersey, and he played all over the place, and so did all these other guys. And so being able to dig up some of those stories, these guys fanned out all across the country, all across North America, played into Canada and into Mexico, too, um, to play baseball in the 1920s and all the way into the late 1930s, um, because that's what they did. That's how they made a living. They played baseball in the summer. Um, And so being able to dig up some of those stories that have never been told before in some cases um, has always fascinated me. And, and, you know, one of the uh, inspirations that continues to drive me to keep digging into this story, because we're still learning more about these guys. We're still learning more about the scandal and what happened back in 1919. And that's, you know, one of the reasons this story still fascinates me.
0: Do do you the Black Sox 100 project? Are you guys going to because we're coming up on what the anniversary of the trial, aren't we?
1: That's right. The grand jury uh, hearings and and the uh, famous confession, the say it ain't so story, which did not happen, unfortunately. Um, You know, all that was in September of 1920. So the uh, 100th anniversary of that will be coming up later this year. And the criminal trial was in 1921. So we're going to stretch this 100th anniversary thing out for about three years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that that's good. I like to learning all of this stuff, which is great as a baseball fan, someone who loves the game. What what do you think, what makes sense as far as a 2020 season working for you?
1: Well, you know, I, I think the main thing is we just have to make sure that, that everyone's going to be safe. I think that's the biggest issue is the health and safety of not only the players, but everybody um, who's involved in putting on a, a baseball game and a baseball season. I think that's something that, you know, there's a lot of logistics to be worked out. And so it'll be interesting to see if major league baseball and the players union can, can work it out, but also, you know, working with public health officials too. And this was something they dealt with, with the flu pandemic in 1918, 1919 as well. So uh, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I think as the old adage goes. So, um, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting. I, I like everyone else. I, I sure hope baseball will come back, but there's a lot of other factors uh, that have to be satisfied as well.
0: I Over the winter, I was in Arizona when the Society for American Baseball Research did an event uh, in Phoenix. It was the Phoenix chapter, and they had d- done an event in Scottsdale, and it was a whole day of like baseball history, and I absolutely loved it. I, I highly recommend if there's ever a Sabre event, and you can just follow Sabre, at Sabre, S-A-B-R, on Twitter, that you go. for For someone like you, when you're getting ready to present, in a room like this with other baseball historians and other fans, what are the things that you try to get across when you're telling the best stories of the game?
1: Well, you know, I think the number one thing is to tell a good story, an interesting story. I think, you know, baseball is just chock full of, of interesting Facts and figures about all sorts of players. And it's not always the most famous players who have the best stories. And, and I think that's uh, one thing that, that Sabre has done so well over the last 50 years as an organization is tell the stories that a lot of people don't realize, you know, the moonlight grams of the world. Uh, you know, those guys have fascinating life stories, not just on the baseball field, but off the field too. And uh, the baseball biography project that Sabre does is is wonderful in, in terms of telling people stories that, you know, don't always get the, don't always see the attention in the light of day uh, that, you know, the big stars, the Babe Ruths and the Jackie Robinsons of the world do. So uh, it's always fun to learn about stories. And Sabre is a great organization for uh, learning something new
0: about baseball. I learn something new from our members every single day about some aspect of baseball. A, a Texer, before I let you go, Jacob, a Texer says you're amazing and and asked you about sports movies. I'm gonna try and filter the question a little bit. As someone who believes in, in getting empirical proof on things, is there a Hollywood sports movie that you really like and thinks and think that does do an accurate job of portraying the event? Hmm. That's a very good question. I I think there are
1: movies that that get the spirit of it uh, right. I think Bull Durham has held up very well in terms of capturing the spirit of the minor leagues. Um, now, whether or not all those stories and all those anecdotes happen, um, you know, I, I think can be left up to the imagination. And I think eight men out in many ways does capture the imagination and kind of the zeitgeist of the time with gambling and baseball. Um, the problem is it relies on uh, source material that, you know, we've, we've flipped on its head. Uh, the central thesis of eight men out is wrong. So. Um, you know, and I, I think, but there's a lot of stories, I think, you know, the Moneyball film that came out about 10 years ago is, is a terrific look at, you know, what was going on in baseball in the early 21st century. But, um, you know, again, you can, you can quibble over some of the historical details and, and certainly all of us, uh, in Sabre will do that, but, uh, but no, there's, there's a number of movies. I think that that get it right, uh, on kind of the, the grand scheme of things.